forever. Uh, Acts chapter number 23. Once you've found that, we'll be in uh, verses 10 and 11. If you're able to, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter number 23, verses 10 and 11. To begin with, we'll be looking at the entire chapter verse by verse this evening. But verse 10 and 11 will give us our starting point here. The Bible says, And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. The sermon this morning, or rather this evening, is going to feel more like a Sunday morning style sermon. This is going to be a sermon I think that will minister to hurting hearts. And the sermon, this morning's sermon was evangelistic in nature. It, 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 was, uh, it was about the gospel and revolved around the gospel. Tonight, we're going to look at uh, this title, Trusting Through Troubles. Trusting Through Troubles. We all go through hard times in life. And uh, learning to trust God during those hardships is really the key to thriving as a Christian. Let's pray this evening. Lord, as we look at this topic and we uh, look at the human side of Paul tonight and we see the, uh, Lord, the, the difficult place he found himself in, the discouragement he most likely felt, must have felt, and Lord, we see that you and your presence were there for him uh, in those times. Help us to look at that example and follow that example in our lives. Lord, may we turn to you and not on our own understanding when times are difficult. Lord, uh, speak to each of us tonight. I know everyone in here is either in a trial, uh, uh, coming out of a trial, or getting ready to go into one. So, Lord, a sermon like this is applicable to everyone. Lord, help us to see what you'd have us to see. Help us to hear that which we need to hear. And help us to feel, Lord, uh, through your Spirit, what we need to feel tonight. Work in our midst, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. When I was a boy, I can remember my parents saying to me, Stop that, or else you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. Uh, Recently, I said that very same thing to one of my children, and my brain went into hyperdrive as I began to analyze that statement. You're going to be in trouble. What does it mean to be in trouble? What does that mean? Um, Well, in the sake of a child with his parents, it means there's going to be severe consequences if they don't stop their action, right? At least uh, you hope that there's some teeth behind that uh, threat and that it's not an empty threat. But the idea of being in trouble with mom and dad, the order of life is disrupted. Uh, uh, There's no longer that system in place of joy and happiness and peace in the home. Now, that's been thrown out the window for a short period of time while the child is in trouble, while they are uh, at odds with mom and dad, while there are uh, there is a a negative uh, uh, look, a negative view, a a harshness maybe from mom and dad toward the child as they are uh, in in, in trouble, uh, as they are suffering consequences for what they have done. That's what it means for a child to be in trouble. As an adult, trouble uh, looks quite differently uh, than it does for a child. If we're honest, nobody likes those times 
of trouble, those times of trouble. I sat down uh, as I put this introduction together and I just thought through some of the troubles that uh, I have gone through and Angela and I have gone through in our adult lives. And uh, I categorically uh, uh, scribbled a few down. There are financial troubles, financial troubles. Um, You ever had an unexpected bill land in your lap? The furnace decides to go up, and then right on the heels of that, the dishwasher breaks, and, and then uh, the washing machine decides it's, it's done, and then about the same time, you, your battery, you go out and start your car, and it won't start, and so you, you run and get a new battery, and then the next morning it won't start again, and so then you've got to take it in the shop and get the alternator, and then it still doesn't start, so you've got to get the starter repaired, and it's just one thing after another, and you turn around and get your credit card statement, and you go, Man, we were able to pay this thing off no problem last month, and now how are we going to, the interest is going to be, how are we going to do this? And uh, there are unexpected bills, and you can be a responsible person with your money and still turn around and, and be facing a mountain of financial struggle. How about loss of a job? How many of you here have ever gone through a work transition where it just came out of nowhere, all of a sudden you just got hit by it? How many of you know what I'm talking about? I've been through it a handful of times. That's not fun. It's not fun, Uh, especially if you're the breadwinner in your home. We have some women in here that are the breadwinner. A lot of our men in here are the breadwinner. And being told, hey, you know, we're we're letting you go. We're laying you off. We don't know when we'll be able to have you back. Uh, We're going in another direction. Here's a pink slip. Or, hey, you know, we we, we like you, but the decision's been made from corporate on the other side of the country, and, and your position's been cut. You don't have a job anymore. And that, that's scary. It's scary, especially when you're let go with prejudice, right? Somebody loses their temper and just fires you. And um, financial troubles, uh, those are challenging times. In fact, of this list that I'm laying out here, uh, financial troubles is toward the top. It's toward the top of uh, when we don't have financial security, when we don't know how we're going to pay our bills and put food on the table and continue to pay the rent or the mortgage, Uh, those are troubles no one wants to face. But I wrote down some other areas of troubles that uh, we go through as uh, we live life. And the next one I wrote down was medical troubles. Medical troubles. You ever had an unexpected illness sweep over you? Right? You're going along and all of a sudden a little sniffle turns into a cough and that turns into COVID. Right? And you're laid up in bed for weeks and maybe even hospitalized over it or you have uh, uh, pneumonia I, I know my dad used to have problems with his back he had herniated discs in his back and and uh, the most pain I've ever my father's a tough guy I don't know that I've ever seen my dad cry from pain ever the only time I saw him close was when he had kidney stones I, I remember him being taken to the hospital with kidney stones and I remember him sitting in the passenger seat my mom never drove my dad was in the car but my mom was driving because my dad could not drive, and he's moaning and groaning and in just the utmost ag- agony, uh, an unexpected illness comes over us that we're not uh, looking for, and boy, that, that's scary. How about chronic illness? Chronic illness. Um, some of you remember David and Elizabeth Wilt. David Wilt preached our Valentine banquet for us two years ago at the Orno Country Club around the corner here. Uh, it wasn't a well-attended banquet, so I don't know how many of you would remember that. 
David and Elizabeth Wilt started a church on Stanton Island. They're church planters in New York City. They got news this week that their little seven-year-old girl named Alethea has a leukemia. And unexpected illness, uh, chronic illness. They're going through a very, very difficult time of trouble, uh, medical troubles. And this next one here might be just as bad as the first two. How about sickness of a loved one? Uh, the truth is I would rather battle cancer, cancer than watch my wife battle cancer. Uh, I would rather deal with uh, an infirmity that is going to plague me and cause me to be hospitalized than watch my children go through that. Watching someone you love very much uh, walk through the jaws of death, boy, that's hard. Uh, I remember going up and visiting Mike here when he had cancer. And uh, he right at death's door, right at death's door. I remember Mike seeing your mom sit in the room there, just crushed. I mean, really taking it hard. And, and uh, your, your son and daughter and, and your wife, uh, so strong outwardly, but I'm sure they had their, their private moments of, of grief and hurt and pain. And, and watching someone you love battle uh, sickness, those seasons of life, of medical trouble, are, are difficult. How about, how about this one? How about relationship troubles? Relationship troubles. You know, uh, I love being married. Love it. Marriage is a lot of fun. This uh, June will be 15 years. Angela and I have been married. Um, but in every marriage, there's, there are seasons where it's, uh, it's, it's filled with strife. And you're maybe not getting along quite like you want. And um, you, you both have a different perspective on something. And there's arguing and bickering. I, I like to look out at the church uh, when I talk about this because um, we all like to come to church and pretend as though none of us have any marriage problems. But unless all of you have got it figured out and I'm the only one that hasn't, we all have those times where it's just not, it's, it's touch and run, touch and go. Um, when you're going through, especially if you love your husband and wife like husband or wife like you're supposed to, those times of marriage, marital strife that go on a day or two or three or a week, even if you're talking it through before you go to bed at night and, and trying to uh, find some resolve, uh, there'll be seasons where you just don't quite get there. How I many know what I'm talking about tonight? Don't leave me out on an island by myself. You know what I'm talking about. The rest of you have it all figured out. Amen. Um, you. Uh, you kind of walk through life with a little bit of a rain cloud over your heart. How about tension in parenting? How many in here have teenagers? You know all about tension in parenting, don't you? Something happens when a child turns into a teenager. They, 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 they learn this body language thing, Right? And they start exhibiting disrespect very subtly through their body language. And then they get good with little quips, right? They can throw the quips right back at you. And sometimes they're zingers and you, you don't have a comeback for them like they did when they were, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And um, we have a mouse in our baptistry. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, in a baptistry engine there. So Angela says, say it's not so. Um, but uh, tension in parenting. Um, uh, how about when your kids get to be adults? Now, this one I haven't experienced yet, but when your kids are 
at home and it's tough, that's one thing. But when they grow up and they move out and they're making decisions that break your heart, my heart bleeds for parents in that spot. Bleeds for parents in that spot. Listen, I just want to say this. If your mom or dad here and your kids aren't living up to the standard that you would hope for, uh, please understand that in no way would I ever be judgmental toward you, and I would encourage the entire church never be judgmental toward someone whose adult kids aren't living for the Lord or aren't living just right. Listen, you get on your knees and you pray for them. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples, and one of them turned out rotten. He was the perfect leader. Uh, There are situations and times where mom and dad can do everything right and a child still go astray, still be a prodigal. You you put your rocks down. Don't you throw them at parents with children who are uh, hurting mom and dad's heart. Look, you've heard it said that Christians are some of the worst about kicking their, their brother while they're down. If someone's kid's not living for the Lord, they're already down. They don't need your judgmental spirit. You put your hand out of love and grace and you pray for them. Relationship troubles, medical troubles, financial troubles. How about loneliness? This time of the year is really hard for some people. They've lost a son or daughter, mom or dad. They're going through Christmas alone without those. I spoke with one person this week who said that uh, they used to love Christmas, but now Christmas is depressing because the kids have moved out and gotten married and are gone and, and, and don't normally come back around at Christmas time. And uh, Christmas is lonely. Lonely. Uh, it may be that God's not yet led you to a husband or wife and you, you go through relationship loneliness. You're all by yourself. It's a struggle. Um, I think of our military where a husband's on the other side of the world and a wife is home alone to raise the home. How lonely that must get. How difficult that must be. Listen, I, I know we don't live next to a military base and we're not really a military church, but please understand that today... There are hundreds and thousands and thousands of soldiers that won't be home for Christmas. And a wife is there alone having to do Christmas with the kids. And that may not be on your radar because you don't have a lot of military friends, but we need to put that on our radar. We need to pray for those people. I'm talking about relationship uh, uh, struggles. How about drama at work? Some of you love Saturday and Sunday because you don't have to go to work. And uh, pastor says after church, you're not dismissed, you're sent. And uh, you're thinking, but I don't want to be sent because I don't want to go to work tomorrow. Right? Yeah, I'm just going to wake up and walk into drama. And I don't want to see the drama. And th- those relationship struggles. I've had jobs where I didn't get along with the boss or the boss didn't get along with me. And Man, you go to bed at night and drama swirls around in your head. And you wake up in the morning and drama swirls around in your head. And uh, that's, not, that's not a fun spot to be in. As I wrote down the various troubles I've gone through in my adult life, and I think all of us have probably experienced and have lived life long enough, there was one more I wrote down, and that was spiritual troubles. 
You ever been there where you just seem to have everything going for you? Maybe you've gotten a raise at work or things are steady at work and, you know, you're getting along with your, your wife or husband okay and your kids are more or less behaving and you got money in the bank and, you know, you got food in the fridge and you can eat out whenever you want and then, but there's just still something off. There's something that just isn't right. I mean, you know what I'm talking about tonight. Your walk with God is just, it's just not what it's supposed to be. I think of David, who sat on the throne and he called himself poor. He had houses of money, he had wives, he had everything. But he said he was poor. Um, you ever had a lapse in a sinful behavior? You're doing real well. You know, you, that besetting sin, you, you've had two, three, four good months against it, and then all of a sudden you fall. And you're discouraged. You ever had gone through a time, and, I, and I'm speaking to mature Christians with this one here. If you're young in the Lord, you may have no idea what I'm talking about, but if you've been saved any length of time, and you've tried to grow in the Lord, then you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say this. You ever gone through a time of purging? The Lord was purging you? He was cutting away those things that weren't necessarily sinful, but, you know, just didn't belong for your growth. I think of a tree that has branches that are producing some fruit, and the, and the farmer or the husbandman looks at that tree and says, if I remove this branch and that branch, and a portion of that branch, boy, we'll get healthier fruit. We'll get better fruit. And purging's not fun because God's cutting away this relationship. And He's taking away uh, this over here out of your life. And sometimes it's addition by subtraction. And you go through times where you almost feel like God's upset with you. And He's not, but it can feel that way. You ever gone through a season where you just knew the chastising hand of God was upon you? I'm not talking about purging. I'm talking about punishment. I hope you know what I'm talking about tonight. Every now and then God pulls out the paddle and he goes to town on me. And it hurts. It hurts. And uh, he just makes it very clear whether it's by touching my money or touching my health or touching some relationship, or, or, or some other avenue of just disruption in my life, God is saying to me, as my Heavenly Father, He's looking down at me and He's saying, Son, you are in trouble. You are in spiritual trouble. I've been generic enough where I think all of us can relate with something. What do you do during times of trouble? Troubles are too often a way of life. We all have them. Sometimes our troubles are big. Oftentimes our troubles are small. They're frustrations. They're aggravations in the middle of our, of our week or our, our, our season of life. Listen, how we cope with troubles will either draw us closer to our God or will drive us farther from Him. Now watch this. A big trouble that's handled wrong will push us a long ways from God. 
a little trouble that's handled wrong will push us a small distance from God. If Satan can't get you in the big trouble, he'll get you with a whole bunch of little troubles. And little at a time, he'll work you away from God. It's almost like Satan goes down and he unties the rope that's holding the boat uh, at, uh, uh, there at dock. And, uh, the, at, at, and under the cover of night, he removes that rope and now you just slowly drift away from the Lord. And you turn around one day and you say, how did I get way out here? I haven't read my Bible in a month or two. I haven't really stopped to pray about anything. I, I feel my heart growing cold toward church and the people of God. You're in a time of trouble. Satan wants to feast on you. If you handle it the wrong way, you're going to find yourself away from God. What each of those little trials that come along, if you can handle them by trusting, by trusting, you'll find your relationship with God grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And we pick up our story of Paul in Acts 23 and find that he was in a time of unrelenting strife. He had just been beaten half to death by an angry mob of Jews in the courtyard of the temple. And then he was chained up so that the Roman guards could scourge him with the cat of nine tails. As we saw last week, he was able to avoid the scourging because he was a Roman citizen. But he still awaited a trial in front of the Jewish religious council. And there, as we'll see in the middle, in a moment, he would face more trouble. Paul had to rely on God, his father, to carry him through this season of life. Now, I think oftentimes we view Paul or other great men of the Bible as being these supernatural Christians who had superhero powers, and they were always able to do what was right. I I want you to hear this. The truth is, they were made out of flesh and blood, just like me and you. They made mistakes along the way, just like me and you. They were afraid, and they were rattled by their circumstances Just like me and you, at times they would become spiritually disoriented, just like me and you. Many of them fell into sin and went through stages of being backslidden, just like me and you. In our times of trouble, we must make a habit of making a beeline to the presence of God our Father. We must learn to trust God through the entirety of the trial. God must become our refuge from the storms of life, the troubles of life. You know, um, Matthew, I believe somewhere in the um, Sermon on the Mount, I don't remember if it's Matthew 5, 6, or 7, off the top of my head, but I think it's Matthew 5. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. I'm paraphrasing there, but you you know the verse. I'd rather have the rain patter down on my head while I stand on the sure foundation of my God who never changes than get dumped on while standing on the shifting sands of culture and and self-reliance. In Acts chapter 23 this evening, we will see a depleted Paul And then we'll see a restored Paul. We will see a threatened Paul. And then we'll see a protected Paul. 
we will see God using sinful men to protect His servant from the evils of Satan. We will see Paul trusting God to carry him through his time of trouble. We will see how that we can find rest through the storms of difficulty and troubles. So let's, let's give our attention tonight to four observations out of Acts 23 as we are challenged to trust through trials. All right, let's jump in here. Number one, notice the word contention. Contention. I'm going to give you a letter A and a B here. Letter A, notice hostility toward Paul. Hostility toward Paul. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23, and we'll read down through verse number 5. The Bible says, And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Well, what's going on here, you may remember last week when we left off, Paul was in the castle. They had him uh, tied up to be scourged and beaten. They were going to beat the information of who he was out of him. And, and he just gave himself up and said, are you allowed to beat a Roman citizen? And there was a dialogue back and forth. And sure enough, they realized this man is Roman. And no, we cannot beat him. And so they kept him in the castle that evening. And the next day, the chief captain of the Roman guard brought Paul down, not to the raucous, rowdy, angry, uh, murderous crowd. No, rather they brought him down uh, to the, the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. And they saw that Paul had a problem with the Jewish council. This should be handled in Jewish court, in the council's court. And so they bring Paul down. I'm sure he's uh, tied up in some way. They bring him down and he's brought in before the council to be tried over the accusations against him. And Paul is going to represent himself. He's going to be his own lawyer. We'll see this over and over again over the next few chapters as Paul represents himself. And what does he do? He declares in verse 1 his total innocence of all the things uh, and all the ways that they were accusing him. He said, all on every level, including my conscience, I am in the clear. I am innocent of all these charges. The high priest who knew the emotion of his um, uh, uh, of his people, and uh, he knew the of his constituents. He knew the anger that was felt. He felt the need to lash out at Paul, and uh, I'm sure this was done um, to appease a crowd, if you will. Maybe the high priest did not like Paul for his own reasons. He turns and tells the men who are guarding Paul. He says, "Punch him in the mouth." And uh, out of nowhere, this guy just reaches up and sucker punches or maybe slaps Paul right in the mouth. And uh, how many of you here, uh, if you were to get punched in the mouth out of nowhere, you'd have an anger, a little bit of an anger flare. Anybody with me? You maybe, you know, not behave or respond just like Jesus would have you respond. Jesus said to turn the other cheek, and uh, Paul did not turn the other cheek. Paul started calling the guy names. And I don't know in context of culture what it would have meant to call him a whited wall. Uh, but that was some sort of insult that Paul threw out 
And um, uh, they're all, uh, mouths are gaping open. Paul is calling the high priest a name. He's saying, how dare you have me hit? And they question Paul, are you going to call the high priest this name? Now, many have speculated that Paul's thorn in the flesh that he references in his, uh, in his epistles uh, that he would write to the churches, many believe that his thorn in the flesh was his vision. And I would agree with that assessment. I believe that Paul probably struggled with his vision. You remember way back on the road to Damascus when he was struck down by the light and uh, he, he was blind uh, beyond that and uh, he, uh, Ananias came and gave him his sight. Uh, I believe that God gave him his sight enough to see, but I believe that God did not totally heal him and that Paul would wake up every day with a vision problem and that was God's way of keeping Paul humble. That was also a, a way of Paul remembering his conversion on a day-to-day basis. And uh, many people believe that Paul had other people write his letters for him. It would have been common that day you'd have a scribe do it for you. But in one letter, he would write, uh, he would write that uh, he, would, he would tell uh, the, the receivers of the letter that he had written it with his own hand, as if to say... This letter comes at a greater effort because I had to write it with my own hand. And so why would Paul turn around and say, oh, I did not know it was the high priest that gave that order? My belief is he he said that because he had a vision problem. He he was not able to see well. Maybe it was cataracts. uh, Maybe it was just uh, either farsighted or nearsighted, but he was not able to. To see, and so we see here Ananias ordering Paul to have, uh, rather ordering the guards to have Paul slapped or punched. There's hostility felt toward Paul. But let's turn our attention to letter B and notice hostility over Paul. Hostility over Paul. Quickly, Paul would use his words to turn the ire away from him and get the council to have uh, ire with each other, anger toward each other. Look at verse 6. The Bible says, but when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a discussion between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the multitude was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were, uh, that were of the Pharisee part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or angel had spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great discussion, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle." Let's just say Paul's plan worked a little too well. Uh, Paul's being brought in to be uh, questioned before the council, tried before the council. But the truth is, they had no idea what the charges even were. You remember the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Jews of Asia, of the city of Ephesus? Remember back a couple of chapters ago how they cried and said, This man brought a Gentile into the temple. Well, this is not even being brought up here now that he's standing before the, the uh, council. So, Paul decides to lay out his own charges. He, he is setting the stage and he says, you all know why I'm here, right? I'm here because I am, uh, I am being held over my uh, opinion that, uh, that there is one day going to be a resurrection of the saints. 
He said, I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and this is what I believe. Why did Paul say this? Because Paul knew that this council was made up of a group of Pharisees and a group of Sadducees. And you know the joke, right? I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're, they're so sad, you see. All right? And so um, that's a good church joke. You all give me a courtesy laugh here. I appreciate that. Uh, you had Pharisees and you had Sadducees. And Paul knew they're big. They agreed on almost everything doctrinally. But they had one area that was a hot-button issue. And Paul did the little brother thing. He reached up and he hit the hot button. He said, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and I am being called into question over the resurrection. And boy, the fight broke out. Paul stands there and he watches the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they begin to argue. And the Pharisees actually cry out and say, Paul is innocent. This man should be let go. He's done nothing wrong. And the Sadducees are like uh, angered over this, the, 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 this apostasy, and this false doctrine, and the, this teaching of Paul's that there is a resurrection. How dare Paul say such a thing? And the chief captain is watching from a loft or from a distance. He's being an observer and he sees that the Pharisees and the Sadducees grab hold of Paul. And they start to play tug-of-war with his arms. The Pharisees have him by one arm. And the Sadducees have him by one arm. Or maybe a leg. And he's being pulled on. And the chief captain orders his men. He said, run down there and get Paul. Or they're going to pull him in half. They're going to pull him in half. Hostility toward Paul. Hostility over Paul. Paul is in a place of, of, of spiritual weariness. He's been physically beaten he's been uh, taken and put uh, in a in a uh, a castle he's being in a holding cell he's being brought down before a council he's been punched in the mouth uh, he's been uh, uh, played tug of war with paul has gone through quite a bit of contention here number 1 we see contention number 2 notice the word comfort comfort and this is really the crux of the message this evening i imagine paul sitting in his holding cell that evening all by himself. Maybe there's the sound of a leaky pipe. Drip, drip, drip. He's sitting there all alone. I imagine how weary he was of body. How exhausted he was in his soul. I, I see Paul sitting there with his, his elbows on his knees. Reaching up and touching his busted lip. Maybe wiping the blood away. And maybe he's adjusting his jaw to see whether or not it was broken. He's reliving the argument that, that ensued, thinking about how that he had lost the room. He had lost the room. He, he, maybe he was discouraged, realizing that he very well could be killed before he even made it to Rome. Paul was in a dark place. Paul was in a place and a time of great trouble. How many here tonight can relate in some aspects with where Paul was? May have been. I'll put it that way. You, you know what it's like to be just discouraged and downtrodden and lonely. and 
you, you just, you know in your head what's right. You know, if I read my Bible and pray and go to church, everything's going to be better. That's what they tell me at church anyway. But you've read your Bible and you've prayed and you've gone to church and it's not seeming to get better. Your heart is heavy. You want to crawl into the covers and pull them up over your head and just pretend as though nothing and no one exists. You see, sometimes we think of someone like Paul as being the superhuman Christian who had it all right all the time. In the end, Paul had it right most of the time. Please understand, there were moments where Paul must have sat by himself and been very discouraged and very alone. Wondered what, which way was spiritually up and which way was spiritually down. What did Paul do? Where did Paul turn in his time of trouble? He turned to the Lord to help him. Look at letter A. Notice the presence of God. You see, if you read over Acts 23 quickly, verse 11 comes and goes so quickly, sometimes we miss that this is the pivot point of the entire chapter. Look at verse 11. Let's, let's spend a, a few moments here together. Look at verse 11. We're going to look at just the beginning of the verse. To start with, it says, In the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. The Lord stood by him. You know what I believe? I can't prove this. But it is my opinion that Jesus Christ in the flesh came into that holding cell with Paul put his arm around him and encouraged him. I think Jesus himself was there to pick up Paul when he was at his absolute lowest. The Bible says the Lord stood by him. Have you ever been kept away by a problem? Have you ever... Uh, pay, rather been kept awake by a problem? Have you ever paced the floor and then you get in bed and you toss and you turn and you get out of bed and you pace the floor some more and you're awake all night and then you see the sun peeking through the window and Paul couldn't sleep that night. And then the presence of God came and calmed Paul's spirit. Oftentimes we can slip into a dark place in our mind and heart. It is in these times we must turn and dwell in the presence of God. I recently had someone tell me that the Baptist answer to every problem seems to be Read your Bible and pray and go to church. And it was almost as though that was being mocked. And I understand the um, nature of what they were saying. I understand the spirit of what they were saying. Could you, Brother Owens, turn that off for me? That would be great. And feel free to come back in the auditorium afterwards. Um, let me ask you to pay attention on purpose while he takes care of that. I'm just going to keep going. Uh, I need your discipline enough to, to pay attention. 
In those times where it feels like our feet are stuck in tar and we can't move, it's difficult to walk. Um, you say, I read my Bible, the three chapters in front of me, and my heart feels nothing. I get on my knees and I go through the motions of prayer and I feel nothing. I'm just going to encourage you, dig a little deeper. Dig a little deeper. John R. Rice, the old preacher of the 1950s and 60s, he, someone asked him once in a question and answer, how long should I read my Bible? John Rice said, he said, read until your heart burns. Read until your heart burns. You know, I've been times where I've sat with my Bible open, and I've read for two or three hours before God broke my heart. Where the words just didn't mean much. And I was given my full attention. And then at some point, God touched my heart. And I felt His presence enter the room in a very special way. There have been times where I've gotten on my knees to pray or gone on a long walk to pray. And it's almost like there's this ceiling between me and heaven I just can't seem to break through. My prayers are just sort of bouncing around my head and off the proverbial walls. and I'm not, I'm not feeling this heart connection with God. You say, Pastor, what do I do in that time? You keep praying. And you keep praying. And you keep praying. And you keep praying. And you keep praying. Paul, in his lowest moment, I believe this is the lowest moment of Paul's life. That's just my opinion. It was in this moment that he turned to God and the presence of God said to him, Be of good cheer, Paul. Be of good cheer, Paul. You see, in Paul's moment of trouble, he trusted. He turned to God. talking about comfort this evening. I'm talking about a healing balm of comfort. This is comfort that cannot be found in a pastor's office. This is comfort that cannot be found from a ladies from another sister in the church. This is comfort that cannot be found by calling a mom or a dad or a brother or sister. This is comfort that can only be found in the presence of Almighty God. We see the presence of God. Next notice, the promise of God. Look at verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And there was trouble brewing on every side, but Paul had a calm assurance that God was in charge and that he would survive the day, survive his time in Jerusalem, and make it to Rome. Now, I think a lot of times we uh, misinterpret the Bible. We read stories like Daniel and the lions didn't think, well, God's going to save me from the lions too. 
right? We think of David and Goliath, and we think, well, God delivered David. I have a guarantee that God's going to deliver me. We forget the end of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, we have this long haul of of, of, of faith heroes, but at the very end of Hebrews 11, the last 7, 8, 9 verses of Hebrews 11 is dedicated to those who held on to their faith while they wandered in caves and starved to death and were naked. We forget that sometimes God doesn't step up and deliver. He chooses to let that Christian suffer and even be martyred for their faith. The easy, lazy application out of verse 11 is that God's going to protect me the way he did Paul. But that is an inaccurate application. However, an accurate, inaccurate application of verse 11 would be that you can claim the promises of God found in Scripture to you. You can claim, you can claim that God is on your team and on your side, and that nothing is going to happen in your life that he doesn't sign off on. Listen to what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say, I think, is really going to help a lot of people. We fall into these traps of believing that the deck has been stacked against us in life and that life just hasn't been fair our direction. If I had been born here... If I had been born to these parents, if I had had his uh, uh, life growing up, if I had had her life growing up, if I had been born uh, with these gifts and this personality, then I would be a better person. When we make those claims, when we have those thoughts, when we live with that complex what we in essence are saying is, God, you made a mistake. You made a mistake. We have many folks in our church who were not born in the United States of America. They were born in other countries, and they, they moved to America through one form or another afterwards. God knew exactly what he was doing when he had you born where you were born. God knew exactly what he was doing. God makes no mistakes. Some of you here grew up in a home that was dysfunctional. You were abused in some form or another by mom or a dad. Taken advantage of by an uncle. And you think that I'm damaged goods or I can never make it. I can. God makes no mistakes. You have a promise in the Bible that God is sovereign. He knows exactly what He's doing. He's given you exactly what you have and who you are. And he has a plan for your life. We see contention. We see comfort. Let's turn our attention to point number three and see conspiracy. Conspiracy. Boy, God promised, Jesus promised Paul, Jesus in the form of God promised Paul that he was going to make it to Rome. Well, boy, they were going to do their very best to try and kill him. Letter A, we see their plan to kill Paul. Their plan to kill Paul. Look at verse number 12. Verse number 12. The Bible says, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. They were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. 
And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever uh, he come near, are ready to kill him. This is bold right here. They're not even hiding it anymore. They go to the chief priest and they say, listen, go tell the Roman government that we need to ask a clarifying question about Paul's position and have him brought down. And while he's there, the 40 of us who have taken an oath that we will not eat or drink anything, we will rush on him and we will kill him. This was the plan to have Paul murdered. Their plan to kill Paul. But listen, God is greater than any scheme of man. Let her be noticed, God's providence to protect Paul. God's providence to protect Paul. Um, well, I have some comments. We'll save them to after we read the passage here. Look at verse 16. And when Paul's sister's sons, this would have been his nephew. When Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. And then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man under the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief priest and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is this that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow into the council as though they would inquire something of him more perfectly but uh, we but do not thou yield unto them for there lie in wait for him of them more than 40 men which have bound themselves with an oath uh, that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him and now are they ready looking for a promise from thee so the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him see thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. I find it interesting that many people just just dismiss the, the hand of God at work. They just dismiss that God's at work in the background, right? They call it coincidence. They call it luck, right? Uh, uh, God is greater than any plan or scheme of man. God, if God wills something to be done and wants it done, He is going to make sure that it is accomplished. Remember the story of Esther, right? Um, uh, Haman was determined that the Jews would die. He was determined that Mordecai would hang. And not only did God foil the plan of Haman, He did it in a way that was entertaining. He, he, had, he had Haman uh, usher Mordecai around town, and then Haman hung on his own gallows. Why? Because God is greater than any scheme of man. Uh, you, you remember the, the story of David and Goliath? Little old David walking down in that valley had no chance against a seasoned warrior like Goliath. And, and, and if, if Goliath had defeated David, boy, that would have completely changed Israeli history. Israeli history would have totally turned it around, turned it on its head. But God helped David defeat the giant because no scheme of man can ever overthrow God's desire. 
Now, you know the story of the ram in the thicket with Abraham and Isaac. God commanded Abraham, take uh, your son, Genesis 22, your only son, up onto the mount and, and sacrifice him and kill him. And Abraham being obedient in this time of great trouble, of God purging his faith and making him stronger, he lays him down on the altar. He raises the knife in the air. He's in the downward motion to kill his son. And the angel of God stops the hand of Abraham and says, you have passed the test. Your faith is true and tried. He said, now turn and look. And there's a ram in the thicket. Sacrifice that animal instead. Was it coincident the ram, ram was there? Was it coincidence the rock found the, the, uh, the forehead uh, right between the eyes of, of Goliath? Was it coincidence that Haman hung on his own gallows? No, there is a God working in the background who knows how to take our troubles, who knows how to take our hard times, who knows how to take the challenges of life, and when we trust Him, He turns them around for His good and His glory. But are you trusting Him? You see, listen, here's what I want you to get from the message this evening. Whether or not you're trusting God, His will will be accomplished. Are you going along on the journey and enjoying it, or are you uh, fretting and wringing your hands and losing sleep and stressing all along the way? You see, this conspiracy was 40 men strong, but God just laughed at their derision. He just smiled and said, nope, nope, we're going to see the sun done. We see contention, we see comfort, we see conspiracy. Let's look at the last point here, number four. Notice the word control. Control. Letter A, we see the Romans' perception. The Romans' perception. Who really is in control? Well, the Romans think they're in charge, but we'll see in a moment that no, God is in charge. Look at verse 23. The Bible says, And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, or seventy, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may see, set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter after this manner, Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greetings. So now we're reading the letter that had been written. Verse 27. This man was taken to the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And when I would have known the cause, wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or, or, by, or of bonds. And when it, was, uh, when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to the accusers also to say before thee uh, what uh, they had against him. And then the farewell. Farewell is the, the closeout greeting. I love this part of the story. The, the Roman captain's perspective is that he knew from the get-go that Paul was a Roman. That was a lie, right? He had put chains on Paul and yanked him up and drug him up the stairs and had him chained to be scourged. And Paul said, is it legal for you to beat me? I'm a Roman. What? You're a Roman? And now he said, I knew from the very beginning that this was a Roman. And that if it wasn't for me, he would be dead right now. I saved his life. God had given Paul favor with the Roman guards and they were determined to keep him alive. Do the Romans get credit for that? Let's look at letter B. And lastly, let's see the Lord's protection. The Lord's protection. Look down at verse 31. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took 
Paul and brought him by night to Antipartus. On the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, uh, when thine accusers are also to come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. So here we see the safe transfer of Paul away from the 40 men who had taken a vow to kill him. And he's been transferred out of town into Caesarea to a, a place, a, a holding place, where he'll, in the next chapter, give an account before another Roman governor. And so who really protected Paul? It was the Lord. It was the Lord. God was working through sinful men to keep his servants safe because he was not yet done with him. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1 says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God has the heart of all politicians in his hand, and they do what he wants them to do when it comes to his people and his glory. God is ultimately in charge. God is in charge. Let's finish the message this evening in Isaiah chapter 55. Turn over to Isaiah 55 with me. When you get there, look at verse number 8. We're going through Isaiah on Wednesday evenings, and one uh, perspective that we have about the book is that Isaiah saw God face to face in, in a vision there in the beginning of the book. And and so when, when Isaiah writes things like we're going to read here in a moment, he is writing this from the perspective of I have stood in the presence of God and seen him face to face. Look at verse 8. Uh, uh, Paul, or Isaiah here is writing about God or writing on behalf of God. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What trouble are you in right now? What hardship are you going through? Sometimes they're public and, you know, you, you share and people know. I'm almost done. Let me have your attention up here for just another moment. But oftentimes our troubles are private and nobody knows. Or a very, very small group of people know. Here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I want you to, to, to hear me say before we, we, we close it down tonight. God hand-selected this trouble so that he could test your faith. He wants to see if you'll trust Him or run from Him. Don't scoff and buck and push away at the trial, at the trouble. Learn to embrace it. Because it's in these times where our faith grows exponentially. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Are you trusting through your troubles? Are you trusting through your troubles? Paul sitting there in that jail, jail cell, busted lip, broken jaw possibly. 
at the lowest of lows, and the Lord stood by him and encouraged him. Are we running to or are we running from our God? Lord, would you please this evening work in our hearts? Would you help us to understand that you're still on the throne and you're still in charge? You're greater than any problem in our life. Oh, Lord God, my prayer is this evening that this passage and these truths would be a healing balm, a change of direction, a fresh perspective for some people who are hurting deeply. Lord God, may we run to you and find that rest and comfort. In Jesus' name, let's stand to our feet. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We're in a spirit of prayer. As the piano plays, if God's working in your heart tonight, will you come and kneel and bend a knee and talk to the Lord? Are you trusting through troubles? Is your faith growing or shrinking? know in your head that God's all in charge but do you really believe that down in your heart God, thank you this evening for the opportunity to see the life of Paul and yet understand it even deeper. We pray, God, that you'd help us this week to trust you and turn to you. Lord, may we grow in our faith. May we be people of strong, strong faith. And Lord, as trials come, may we not ask if you'll come through, but rather help us to look to see how you'll come through. Lord, grow us to that point of our faith. Help us to trust you in Jesus' name.